Okay, good morning, Boker Tov. We have the privilege, the Shabbos, of uh, reading Parshas Vayera and to continue the wonderful story we began of Avram Avinu <clears throat> and uh, his incredible contributions to the world. We spoke about last Shabbos the mistaken notion that many people have that Avram is the father of monotheism. It's incorrect. Many people assume Avram's greatest contribution was introducing the world to the concept of one God. But the, as the Rambam points out, we read it last week at length on Shabbos, it's just uh, inaccurate. There were monotheists before Avram. In fact, the, according to the Rambam, the history of religion is that the default religion of the world was monotheism. I mean, think about Adam and Chava. Think about Mesushelach, Chanoch, Shem and Ever. Shem and Ever had a yeshiva. They all worshipped one God. And then the world went astray. The world <clears throat> subscribed to pagan beliefs. Avram rediscovered one God. So why is it that the names I mentioned are footnotes in Jewish history while Avram is the progenitor, Avram is our patriarch, Avram is Avinu? What's the difference? The Rambam himself explained this in the opening parak of Hilchas Avodah Zarah, Allah The Rambam never gives history. The Rambam's writing a book of Halacha. Why does he tell us the history of religion? Because to him that's Halacha. It's reminding us how we have to behave. And the Rambam writes, Why is Avram identified as the father of monotheism if in fact many who came before him were monotheists? Because they kept that thought to themselves. They kept their epiphany, their opinion, their idea, their discovery to themselves. Avram felt an obligation to share it. The Ramadan describes so beautifully every ear, ve'ir, medino, medina, mamlacha, mamlacha, the Ramadan writes, everywhere Avram went, he stood on a soapbox, he grabbed a megaphone, he took out ads in the newspaper, took out time on the radio, and he proclaimed the uniqueness, the oneness, the goodness of the Ribbono Shalom, and he attracted people. Through his power of persuasion, he transformed the world to the point that today, 2014, as Lord Rabbi Sachs points out, more than half the globe are adherents to Judaism, the true and authentic legacy of Avram Avinu, the only true and authentic legacy of Avram Avinu. But if you include the billions of Christians and billion and a half Muslims who also, right or wrong, but identify Avram as their spiritual ancestor, more than half the globe today continued to feel the influence of Avram in his power of persuasion. He didn't rule an empire, he didn't have a standing army, he didn't make laws. It's the, uh, Rabbi Sachs writes, Avram is the, the greatest example of influence without power. Right? So that's all we talked about last week in the context of encouraging people to vote, to use our opinion. Avram had to risk his life to espouse his opinion, to influence his world. Thrown in the Kivshan Ha'ish by Nimrod. Nimrod, who tried to enforce conformity and uniformity, didn't let Avram have his own independent thinking, freedom of religion. We have that privilege, we have that opportunity. As Rav Moshe Feinstein wrote in Tshuva in 1983, in October of 1983, we have a halachic mandate and imperative to vote. Takara Satov, to express that freedom and appreciation. I hope everybody will go and vote today. So Avram's great contribution, to come back to our parsha is not the introduction of monotheism. That came before him. That was the default of the world. Avram's introduction was to do something about it. Or the campaign that we've tried to, to launch this year of uh, hashtag Kiddush Hashem. That all of our life should be about bringing, bringing Judaism, bringing Torah, bringing this to others. In fact, that's how our parsha begins. Vayera Elov Hashem Be'elonei Mamrei V'hu Yoshev Pesach Ha'ol K'chom 
Av- Hashem appears to Avram in Elone Mamre. And where is Avram sitting? Avram is sitting at the entrance to the tent. The Rav writes, there's a wonderful book that came out as part of the um, Rabbi Soloveitchik series. As part of the Me'otzar HaRav series, Selected Writings of the Rav. It's a great book called Abraham's Journey, Reflections on the Life of the Founding Patriarch. It's really the Rav's essays on Parshas Lech Lecha and Vayera, Chayisara, and uh, really, really wonderful. And in here the Rav writes, Abraham sat at the entrance of his tent. It's not necessary to renounce the world in order to be close to God. A person can be within the world, be a part of the world, be engaged in human affairs, sitting in front of his tent, not somewhere in a retreat, in isolation, in a cave, in a cell, locked up and isolated after long days of prayer and devotion. Avram was busy with the daily chores, his everyday affairs, but if you attend to your everyday affairs in a manner satisfactory to God, you have an encounter with the Holy One, blessed be He. Right, an incredible insight of the Rav, just on this opening Pasuk. When did God appear to Avram? When does Avram have this rendezvous, this dialogue, this amazing visit by the Master of the Universe Himself? I might think, when did He have this? He must have been in davening, engrossed in learning, in doing... No. Yoshev Pesach He's sitting at the entrance of his tent in the mundane. The Rav is pointing out that when we bring Hashem and spirituality into the mundane, then Hashem visits us in the mundane. You're welcome the Shechina, not only in the, the venues and the acts that we identify as holy, but we welcome the Shechina into the mundane and the everyday as well. But the Rav points out an interesting anomaly. This is not what I want to study. This is just the overview of the Parsha. But I'll just share with you quickly. Vayera elav Hashem be'elonei mamre. Vayera elav Hashem. It's kind of informal, isn't it? Elav. God appeared to him. If this was an essay you were submitting in school, if I began my rabbi's message or my drusha this way, you would say, this is very poorly written. It should say, Vayera. No, Vayera el. El Avram. Hashem appeared to Avram. Why the informal pronoun, a love? God appeared a love to him. Why not say, to whom? We're beginning a new parsha. We're beginning a new cheperek, perek yirches. Why not, why not say, to whom? Moreover, what was the nature of their visit? What's missing points out the Rav that we have earlier, at the end of last week's parsha, when Hashem appears to Avram, Vayera, I love. Vayera, here. Go back to Perak Yud Zayin. Right? We're looking at Perak Yud We're looking at chapter 18, verse 1. Go back to chapter 17, verse 1. And contrast the two psukim. In last week's parsha, when Hashem is ready to form a covenant with Avram, after Yishmael was born, Vayi Avram ben Tishim Shana Vitesha Shanim, he's 99. Vayero Hashem el Avram, Vayomer Elov. God appears to Avram and says to him, I am God. Walk before me and be perfect. What does it mean, be perfect? It means means walk before me. Don't subscribe to astrology. Don't subscribe to superstition. Don't subscribe to, you know, uh, the uh, Psychic Friends Network. Don't read your horoscope. Don't think your future depends on anything but me. Walk before me. 
Tomim Tiyam Hashem Elokecha. This obligation, this mitzvah to be Tomim with Hashem means to put our faith exclusively in Hashem. Rav Shechter points out that what Avram introduced to the world, sadly, so many of Jews in our generation, we've reversed. Avram said, leave the culture of superstition. Leave the culture of believing in horoscopes and believing in false gods and recognize that everything is exclusively from Hashem. That's what Tomim Tiyem Hashem means. And what have many from Jews done today? We are the descendants of Avram who should fulfill this mandate of living exclusively, dependent, exclusively on the Almighty. We wear red bendels, we do this, we do that, we're fearful of it. All these ridiculous uh, superstitions. Superstitions. You know what the greatest schoolos are? Am Segula. Hashem calls us a nation of schoola in the Torah. You know what are the greatest schoolos? We have 613 schoolos. And they don't include keys and red strings and all kinds of other things. Avram's great contribution was transcending a culture of superstition, recognizing it all comes from Hashem. We should not make the mistake of subscribing to the culture Avram left and abandoning the legacy of our forefather. But anyway, that's my editorial uh, comment. So the Rav contrasts the opening Pasuk of the last parak with the opening Pasuk of ours. In the last parak it says, Vayera Hashem El Avram. Torah is not afraid to say to whom God appears, does not use a pronoun. Vayera Hashem El Avram. And what does it say with us? Vayera Elav Hashem. Elav. Why not mention Avram? Number two, what's the other contrast? Vayera Hashem El Avram. What's the next word? Vayomer Elav. In the last parak, God appears to Avram, Vayomer Elav, and he starts speaking to Avram. That's the purpose of his visit. To communicate something. What happens in our parsha? Right. What's missing? There is no vayomer. There's no conversation. What was the purpose of this revelation? What's the objective? What was God seeking? What did He tell him? What's the message? It's missing. God visits Avraham. The omnipotent, infinite being visits upon a finite human. There must be a reason, an objective. What was the reason? What did he want to tell him? It's missing. It's missing. So listen to what the Rav says. Amazing. Rashi says, Vayera, I love he appeared to him in order to visit the sick. God paid Avram Bikrcholim a sick call. He was in pain. It was the third day after the circumcision. Rav Chama Bachanina said that it was the third day when one suffers severe pain and the Almighty appeared to ask about his state of his health. Bab Metziah, Pei Vav. Avram was in need, writes the Rav, and God came to visit him. There is no Vayomer, no message, no command, no law, no promise. God simply came to see him. If two individuals are close friends, sharing a sense of intimacy and companionship, then one of them need not have a message to deliver in order to walk into the other's home. That is where Martin Buber made the biggest mistake, writes the Rav. Conversation or dialogue is not the highest form of friendship. Once a conversation comes to an end, there's nothing else to do but leave the house. The highest form of friendship does not require words. I do not have to tell my friend why I came to see him. I just come because I like to be present in his home. 
This usually happens between husband and wife, between brother and sister, parents and child. Except in our halachic, stu- except in our halachic studies, my father talked very little to me. He never confided in me. The Rav had a notoriously cold, so to say, relationship with his father. The Rav writes elsewhere, his father never kissed him, never showed him affection. You know, the typical image we have of briskers, kalta litvax. He says, aside from talking about a difficult Rambam, my father didn't talk to me, but he wanted me to be around because he liked me. There was no need for words, for an exchange of remarks. Why does a mother like to have her baby sleep in a room or in a room next to her? It's not simply because of the safety of the baby. The mere feeling that the baby is nearby gives her satisfaction. I liken it to, you know, the most, the sweetest thing you can see is you're in a restaurant and there's an older married couple sitting there and minutes, multiple minutes go by and no words are exchanged. (laughs) And not because they've been married 40 or 50 or 60 years and there's nothing left to say, but because while those married less time feel a need, feel a need to fill the space with words, they're just comfortable and basking in each other's presence and that's good enough. And that's good enough. And there's something remarkable and admirable about that. But the younger generation may feel comfortable, so they go on their phone instead. <laughs> but the older generation just know how to dwell and savor the presence of another. And that's what the Rav is describing. This is a model of Bikr Cholim, of Chesed, where you savor the mere presence, the comfort for provided by the mere presence of another. So that's the informal. Let me keep reading the Rav. This is, I know we study from the Mikros Gedolos. The purpose of this class is to analyze the text and go through the Rasher and Ban, Kliyakar, Achayim, and so on. We'll get to that in a moment. But I saw this incredible, I don't know if you could describe an essay of the Rav as delicious, but this amazing of the Rav, I had to share with you. Before this visit, the relationship between God and Avram was a formal one. It did not involve friendship. There was a contractual relationship between employer and employee, between master and servant. Every Vayera was accompanied by a Vayomer. But after Avram was circumcised and the covenant was established, there was a new intimacy, a new kind of friendship, one that did not have to be expressed in words, that did not need speech or a message. Familiarity has changed into friendship, where the Vayomer is completely superfluous. The purpose of visiting is not to tell him anything, but just to see him, to listen to his voice. God came because Avram was ill. But even if Avram had been well, God would have been there. And now we understand why a love is used. As long as the relationship is a formal one, it's guided by the rules of courtesy. Formality requires mentioning the name. But when we visit a friend, there's no need for the name. Furthermore, in the Bible, the verb and the subject are usually not separated. If Vayera is the verb and God is the subject, the verse should have read, Vayera Hashem a love, not Vayera a love Hashem. By reversing the subject and the object, the Torah means to emphasize that Avraham was very close to Hashem, that God longed to see him. He felt lonely without Avraham, so to speak. He wanted to see him just as the mother wants to see her baby or a father his child. There's no need for Vayomer. God simply wanted to be near Avraham. That's why Yeshaya Hanavi calls him Avraham Ohavi, my beloved. Up to this point, Ohavai, up to this point we have been reading the story of Avraham Avdi, Avram, the servant of God, from Parshas Vayera on is a new story. A new tale is introduced. The story of Avraham, the friend, the companion of God. It's a beautiful essay. It's really an amazing book. You should get it. You can't study, or it, it transforms your study, understanding of Parshios, Lach Lecha Vayera, Chayesara. Really great insight of the Rav. So just these words that we gloss over, three words, Vayera Elav Hashem. 
the Rav comes up with this beautiful essay. Why the informal? Because of the friendship. Why the no need for Vayomer? Because real friends don't need to say something. Whether you're visiting the sick or you're dropping in on a friend, because I just wanted to hear your voice. Because I just wanted to see how you're doing. Because I just wanted to be in your company. I wanted to feel your companionship. And when you visit the sick, you don't have to feel obligated to speak. We gave a class a few months ago on the laws of paying a shiva call. We learned from Eov, you're not allowed to speak until the mourner opens the conversation. Why? Because the greatest comfort is to say, I'm here with you, feeling your pain, and in silence. We don't need to fill the space with sound, with, with, with talk, with conversation. So similarly here, that's now the casual comfort relationship that Hashem has, this new relationship, Hashem and Avram, a great insight. Okay, and yet Avram inter- inter- interrupts the conversation. We've shared this before. Avram says to Hashem, instead of saying to the three wandering Arabs walking his way, can you hold on a moment? I'm in the middle of talking to the Almighty. He says to the Almighty, could you hold on a minute? I see three people, they look hungry. That's mind-boggling, right? He's talking to the Ribbonu Shalom, the Melech Malchem Lachem, the King of Kings. How could it be? So I've shared before and I'll share again. There's an insight I heard from my friend Rabbi Hauer of Baltimore, a, a tremendous, a great Rav, who uh, I respect uh, tremendously. He shared this great insight and he lives by this insight. He says, Avram understood that God would prefer us to be like him rather than talk to him. Given the choice, the conflict, to emulate God or to talk to God, Hashem says, I'd rather you stop our conversation and go be like me. More important to be like God. A lot of people talk the talk about God, but they don't live like God. Because Baruch prefers and Avram understands, go be like me rather than talk to me. So Avram does, and he goes and he treats these three who are really angels and uh, in the guise of men. Avram takes care. They come to deliver a promise to Sarah. Avram learns about the impending destruction of Sodom. Torah interrupts to say that God feels he can't keep the secret back, which reinforces the Rav's idea. If Avram is now not only God's servant, but God's friend, Kiviachal, right? you can't say God has friends, as if to equate him with mere mortal. But so to say that's the level of their relationship, then Hashem says, I can't keep this back from my dear friend, from my beloved companion, from my Avram. I've given him a charge to bring to the world my mission. Ethical monotheism, how could I not reveal to him what I plan to do? Avram intercedes for Sodom and tries to negotiate. Right From here we learn, cuts the number down and down and down. Now, Sodom is a place of great wickedness and evil, and yet Avram intercedes nonetheless for them. Sodom is destroyed. Avram is unsuccessful in his negotiation. You learn, by the way, a very powerful lesson. Sometimes God wants man to protest. It's a mistake. It's an absolute mistaken notion that we are to blindly accept Hashem's will without protest. Because Baruch who created a world where He sometimes invites us and wants us to look to Him and say, I protest. I'm protesting your treatment of the world, your decision. Yes, I'm finite. Yes, I'm mere mortal. Yes, I don't understand. And in the end, I will accept whatever you do and say, Ribbonu Shalom. But I must protest. I must advocate. I must lobby on behalf of mercy and compassion. And that's what Hashem wants. And if you think it's not true, that whatever is happening around us, we should blindly accept Avram is our precedent. Avram is our example. Somebody's sick, you don't say, well, Hashem wants them to be sick. Somebody's suffering. The Rambam writes, Echa b'bnei 
when one person of the community, Yido Kola Chabura, the whole Chabura, the whole community, the whole circle of friends should worry, should protest. Hashem, we're not okay with this. Make them better. Help them find Parnassah. Help them find their Shidduch. Help them have a child. We learn the precedent for protesting. Now, we also learn that when Avraham lost, you have to be a gracious loser. Avram accepts the Rebbeinu Shalom. He doesn't walk away because Hashem said no. We had Esther Waxman speak here a few months ago, earlier this week. She gave the most incredible speech on Shabbos morning. That sometimes Hashem says no. And that should strengthen your faith, not weaken it. Like it did for Avram, it has to do for us. Sodom is destroyed. Lot is saved. This is what we're going to study. We have this very bizarre um, interaction between Lot and his daughters, this incestual relationship. But in relationship of incest that yields the the uh, beginning the beginnings of Mashiach that result that emanate from this incest. Avram goes to Gerar, Sarah is abducted, the relationship with Avimelech, and then finally we have the birth of Yitzchak. Hagar and Yishmal are expelled. Hagar gives up on Yishmal, Yishmal ends up being saved, Basher Husham. And then we have the relationship with Avimelech in Beersheva. And finally, the end of Pasha's Vayera is, we've studied this before, the story of the Akeda. Akeda's Yitzchak, the binding of, of Yitzchak. Very, very powerful. Okay. Let's go back. I want to look at uh, Perak Yutes together. Chapter 19. Chapter 19. <clears throat> Page 84 in the article Stone Chumash. Where are we in the review of what we just did? Avram tried to negotiate on behalf of Sodom and he failed. So now the angels are coming to continue their mission. How many angels were there to begin with? Three. Three. And how many... Uh, what, and uh, what were their missions? What does it say here? There were two. Why are there two? Says Rashi. An angel is created for the purpose of fulfilling a mission, the will of the Almighty. When the angel completes its mission, the angel ceases to exist. So the angel leaves because there are only two, because the first completed its mission, namely, to inform Sarah that she was going to conceive and bear a son, Yitzchak. So again, the Sodom. the two angels came to Sodom in the evening. Why do we care when they came? The morning, the afternoon, the evening, it was 1 o'clock, or 9 or 6 a.m. What do we care what time they came? Why does the text include what seems a superfluous fact? And where is Lot sitting? The entrance of the tent, so to say. At the gate of Sodom. Lot rises and goes to greet them. They bow down. And they bow down. Why do we care that it's Erev? What's the significance that it's Erev? Says the Ibn Ezra, Bo'erev? What is Erev reminiscent of? Bo'erev tochlu? Matos. Says the Ibn Ezra, Bo'pesach Mitzrayim, Bo'erev. When did this take place? We're going to see. What does Lot prepare for them? Matos. And Rashi says, Pesachaya. 
when did this event, when did this story happen? On Pesach. Now you'll ask, that's ridiculous. On Pesach, Pesach didn't happen yet. The Jews hadn't gone down to slavery in Egypt. They hadn't been redeemed. They didn't go through the Exodus. How could the Pesach? Pesach hadn't happened yet. It's an excellent question for another time. For another time. No, 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 no. We have. There's another answer. There's a fundamental answer that it's fundamental to the understanding of the Jewish calendar. It's fundamental to the understanding of Jewish holidays, but it's not fundamental to this parsha. So we'll do it another time. So, but but Be'erev is not extraneous. The Ibn Ezra was bothered why Be'erev, right? Again, we, the the purpose of this class, with very rare tangents is text-based. We're trying to understand the text, dissect the text, go through the way our Meforshim and the Makros Gedolos examine the text. We're bothered by the text. Ibn Ezra is bothered by Erev. He says, Be'erev is to, it's a hint, it's a flag. It tells us Be'erev means Pesach. The Yorachayim was also bothered by Be'erev. He writes, Because it was in the evening meant to tell us that Lo was preparing to receive them. And to fulfill the mitzvah of Achnasas Orachim. Bo'erev. They were coming, they needed a place to sleep. And that's why it tells us Bo'erev. To reveal to us that Lot did remember one thing from his uncle's home. Yes, Lot was attracted to Sodom. Lot gave up a life of virtue and nobility for a life of hedonism and decadence. But even within that life of hedonism, he maintained a virtue that he had learned in the home of, of Avram. And that was? Hospitality. So Bo'erev says the Orachayim is because these angels came needing a place to sleep. So it tells us Bo'erev in the merit of Lot that the story unfolds in a way that Lot can offer them hospitality. Uh, Even though we know that Lot was saved ultimately in the merit of Avraham, but says the Orachayim, Rechayim ben Atar, you have to find a little merit for Lot. Had they come during the day, they might not have even made it into the city at all. They came under the cloak of darkness of night, needing a place to stay. So they were able to penetrate into Sodom, able to get into the city, and Lot was able to offer them hospitality, which is a, a small merit, a small schus for Lot. That's Bo'erev. How do they appear to? How do they appear to Lot as? It's not a trick question. Pasagalaf, we just read it. Malachim. How did they appear to Avram? Go back to the opening of the parsha. The second verse of our parsha. Avram lifted his eyes. Vayar. Similar to Lot. Vayar. Lot saw. Vayakon lekrasam. Avram. Anashim. So again, Rashi was bothered. I noticed none of you were. But Rashi was bothered. Why for Avram did they appear as Anashim? And for Lot they appeared as? Malachim. What, what, what? Oh, so Lot was only willing to extend hospitality to angels. Avram saw them as men and nevertheless was willing to extend hospitality as well. It shows the greatness of Avram. Beautiful. Good. Why else? So writes Rashi. Lahalan kara manashim. Kishaisa shkina imaim kara anashim. 
The second interpretation Rashi is quoting from the Barashas Rabbah, the Medrash, is for Avram, having angels around is normal. Avram regularly is in the company of angels. So Avram sees them as men. Whereas for Lot, it's unusual. So Lot calls them angels. What does that mean? Since for Avram, it's ordinary, he sees them as men. Since for Lot, it's extraordinary, he sees them as angels. So the Rav, I'm very into the Rav these days. The Rav says, this is not in the Abraham's journey. This is in the, the OU put out Chumash with the commentary of the Rav. So far they just have Ambracious. See here the Rav says the following. The word Malach, when used in the Bible, can refer to a human as well as a celestial being. Both were created for the same purpose, to carry out God's mission. The difference is angels have no free will. They're compelled to carry out their assignment. Man, in contrast, is free to be either faithful or unfaithful to his mission and his sender. In the Torah's description of the visit to Avra by three strangers that described as Anosh, men. In the verse when Avram's nephew Lot, they're referred to as Malachim, angels. And Rasha, we just read the Rasha. Avram lived his life as a true agent of God, totally dedicating himself to his assignment. Angels who are similarly dedicated appear to Avram as peers, men who did not seem extraordinary in any way. But in Sodom, a locale where man was completely self-centered, this concept of assignment was foreign. The presence of these strangers in Sodom created a sensation. Here was a group of strangers who lived not for themselves but exclusively to fulfill a mission from God. Lot had never construed his life as God's agent. The strangers therefore appeared to him as otherworldly, angelic beings. Right? Another great insight of the Rav. Meaning, Avram also was an angel. Avram lived his life as an angel. Right? We spoke about this on Shabbat Shuvah. Our mission as a Mamlachas Kohanim Megoy Kadosh our entire mission, the reason the etch of the Jewish people is Kiddush Hashem. Kiddusha. Every day, we say in davening, Nekadesh Eshimcha Ba'olam. God, I will sanctify your name in the world. And then Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Who are we modeling that after? That's a conversation of the angels. The pledge, the promise that we make to Hashem is, God, I'm going to be your angel. Avraham was God's angel. So when he sees other angels, he sees peers, he sees colleagues, he sees them as men. Lot failed on that mission. Lot was not an angel for anyone. He lived in a place, Sodom, that was all about yourself. So when Lot sees these people, who are not about themselves, but they're about fulfilling a mission for God, he sees them as angels. That means in our lives, do we want to be mere men, caring only about ourselves, or do we want to be angels fulfilling our mission by being an angel for someone else? That was the charge of the Shabbat Shuvah Drasha. What I've been trying to continue to promote and to campaign. Be someone's angel every day. Be someone's angel. Offering the landscapers a drink as one 13-year-old boy did after the Shabbat Shuvah Drasha. Or the man in the wheelchair who saw another woman in a wheelchair in a store in the aisle and her wheelchair was broken. So he said, I'm going to be your angel today. Meet me at my house later. And he gave her a spare wheelchair worth thousands of dollars. Be someone else's angel. So that's what's going on here. Lot sees them as malachim, because for Lot they're extraordinary. He's ordinary. Avram sees them as anashim, as peers, because Avram himself is an angel 
in other people's lives. Pasik Beis. Lot sees these two angels, men, and he says, Behold, turn about, come to my house, spend the night, wash your feet, wake up in the morning early, you'll go on your way. And what do they answer? My Lord, so be sure that it's out of yeah, he sees them as great. And what are this, what's their response? No, we're good. We'll sleep in the street. We're good. We'll be okay. We'll be okay. Notice another discrepancy here. Lot offers them, Linu, sleep here for the night. First come in. And then, wash your feet. What did Avraham do? Go back to the Pasuk. Abraham says, first wash your feet, and then come in and rest under the under the shade of the tree. Why the difference? Says Rashi. Do people enter a house and only then wash their feet? You know, hospitality in Sodom was a capital crime. If you were hospitable, if you hosted others, you were put to death. Sodom was a place of what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours. There's no sharing, there's no kindness, no graciousness, no compassion, no hospitality. Sodom is the ultimate of self-centeredness, of hedonism, of the pursuit of pleasure. Lot was fearful. If they washed their feet and came in, their host would say, oh, they've been here a week already. Look how clean they are. And put him to death for this hospitality. So he said, first stay here, then you'll wash your feet before you go, because if anyone sees you here, I want them to know you just arrived. I want them to think you just got here. I don't want to get in trouble. The Orachayim was also bothered by this, but the Orachayim gives a different answer. Says the Orachayim, What is the, the symbolism of wash your feet before you enter the home? Rashi in the beginning of the Parsha says, Avram made them wash their feet because to remove any trace of idolatry. Their feet represents their bowing down. Remove any trace of idolatry. Lot says, come in my house. What's, I think there's a very powerful lesson of this Orachayim HaKadosh. That which we show hospitality, that which we're warm and welcoming, that which we're caring and inviting, is not unfettered, is not without limits or boundaries or unfiltered. We also have to worry about its impact on us and our families. So we invite anyone into our home without judgment. You're observant, you're not observant. You have a strong background, you have a weak background. You voted this way in the election today, you voted that way in the election. Even if you root for the Red Sox, you're invited into my home. But you have to wash your feet first. Don't walk into my house with the Red Sox hat. Absolutely. You have to wash your feet first. Now what I mean to say is it's a very powerful lesson. This contrast between Avram and Lot is that 
being hospitable is important, but not at the expense of the risk of being exposed to foreign influences and values. So yes, I want you in my home, but in my home, on my terms, not bringing your world into my world. So without judgment, you're an idolater, I'd love to have you in my house, but don't bring your idols with you. Don't bring your idols could mean in the conversation we're going to have at the Shabbos table, not just the idol that might be in your pocket, but it means don't bring that negative influence. It's a very powerful imagery of the difference between Avram and Lot. Avram first says, wash your feet, and then I'd love to have you in my home. Lot says, come into my home, everybody's welcome, bring whatever influence you want, whatever idols you want, whatever Red Sox paraphernalia you want, and only later, you know, wash your feet. Okay, so again, Rashi and the Rechaim were bothered by the same question. They come at it with different approaches and provide different answers. Continuing. They reject Avram's invitation. We're not coming. At first. Vayiftar ba ma'od. Lot's invitation, I'm sorry. Lot, nobody corrected me. Lot's invitation. They say, no, we'll spend the night in the, in the street. But he urges them. Vayiftar ba ma'od. He urges them. He pressures them. Vayasuru elav evo abiso. So they, they turn towards him, they come to his house. And he bakes for them matzah, and they ate. Rashi says matzos afa, even more explicit than the Ibn Ezra before, Pesach Haya. It was Pesach. It was Pesach. Again, what's the connection? We'll leave that for another time. He pressured them. Look at the Ramban. Says the Ramban, Lot didn't take no for an answer. It's, this is, the Torah here is not saying that Lot was a, a nudnik. He was, he was relentlessly annoying by pressuring them. It's trying to praise Lot that he wouldn't take no for an answer. You have to come, you'll be comfortable. He tried to make it realize, you know, often someone invita- invites you, it's hard to know, are they inviting you out of a sense of obligation or are they inviting you because they really want you? How do you know? Because when you say no, are they okay with the no? That meant they invited you out of a sense of obligation. They invited you, they're done with their obligation if you said no. But if you say no and they say, no, no, I really want you, please, and they insist and insist and insist and insist, then you know it's genuine, it's authentic. So this is in Lot's chus, says the Ramban. They said no in order to give Lot greater chus. And they said yes right away. Okay, so he hosted them. By saying no, by demurring and then Lot insisting, they gave Lot a greater chus. Now you're only supposed to do this, says the Gemara Bar Metziah, Mesarben Lekotn Vein, Mesarben Legadol. Because what do you notice about their interaction with Lot? Again, there's so much contrast between Lot and the beginning of the parish with Avram. Did they protest? Did they resist? Did they, did they hesitate with Avram? No, they accepted right away. Why? So the Mom Bab says, When do you pull the whole shtick of, no, thank you, it's okay, I don't need, you don't have to have me. You do that with a katan. But a gadol, somebody who's great, they invite you, you jump at the opportunity. So the angels, when it came to Lot, they hesitated. But when it came to Avram, they accepted right away, they jumped at the opportunity. They did not yet lie down to go to sleep 
And lo, lo and behold, Lot was right in what he predicted. Here they were. The posse. The townspeople. The gang. The people of Sodom. They converged on the house. Young and old. People from all over. We have cameras. We got word. We have surveillance. We saw that there were men who came here being hospitable. It's against the law against them. Get take them out so that we can know them. What's going on here? What does it mean? So first of all, we said Lot uh, Sodom is the opposite of the Midah of Avram. Sodom is about cruelty, insensitivity, caring about yourself to the extreme that you don't care about others, to the point that caring about others is a crime. Because what happens if you care about others? In Sodom, if you allow people to care about others, you run the risk of destroying the fabric of their society. People start to care about others, then you feel guilty for not caring. Then you feel an obligation to care, to share. So in order to create the environment they wanted, they had to legislate not caring, and they had to punish those who did. So they descend upon Lot's house, and they demand that Lot send out Whoever these guests are, v'nei da'osam. What is v'nei da'osam? Rashi says, mishkav zachar. Where does the name Sodom come from? And let me rephrase that. Where does the term sodomize come from? Sodom. They sought to sodomize these men, mishkav zachar. They wanted to take advantage to sodomize these men. Sodom comes from sodomize. V'nei da. Right? What do we have in the Torah? To know someone is to know them intimately. The Adam Yada is Chava Ishto. Intimacy is the highest form of knowledge. The parties of intimacy expose themselves one to the other in the ultimate level of exposure physically and emotionally. And in, a, in an exclusive arrangement of intimacy, intimacy in a proper context yields the holiest level of knowledge, true knowledge, the true integration. To become one, to know each other in ways that no one else knows you. To allow yourself to be known in a way and to know someone else in a way that is exclusive. Here what's happening, they want to know them, biblically, to know them by sodomizing them. Not know them in a spiritual, intimate way, but to degrade that act and into the most base, into the most animalistic, into the most aggressive, essentially to rape, to sodomize and rape the guests of, of Lot. Look at the Ramban. Kavanasam Lachalos is Egamibneim. Kedivirebosenu. Kihoshu Shavor Tovas Artsam Shiakigan Hashem Yavo Sham Rabim. Vehemayu Moase Atstaka. They thought, because they lived in a land which was the garden of Hashem, that they would attract the masses. Sodom would grow and grow and grow. It's like Lahavdil Boka's Ganeid in our palm trees. People will keep moving in. Vehemayu Moase Atstaka. They despised charity. They despised charity. Why did they despise charity? Right, the, Medrash, the, the Mishnah Perky Elvis describes that a person who says, what's mine and mine is what's yours is what's yours. Midas Sodom. You can't, you can't have access to what's mine. If it, the culture who says, what's mine is yours, what's yours is mine, the Mishnah is critical of. What does that lead to? A socialist, communist culture which 
as history has shown, including the kibbutz movement, is unsuccessful. So the Mishnah rejects what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine. The Mishnah also rejects what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours. Exclusively, an unwillingness to share. Tzedakah says, I'm going to give you, Tzedakah says, I'm going to give you what's mine, even without you giving me anything that's yours. What is Tzedakah? If not taking something that belongs to me and giving it to you. The Rambam writes more Nebuchim. In fact, that should be called many things, but not Tzedakah. What's the root of the word Tzedakah? Righteousness. Tzedek. What's righteous about my taking my hard-earned money and giving it to you? That's not righteous. That's chesed. It's nice. It's kind. But it's not just. Which just is for me to keep what's mine and you to keep what's yours. And if you want what's mine, that's chesed. Tzedakah. It shouldn't be called tzedakah. It should be called chesed. So the Rambam says, no. If you understand that what God gave you, He gave you in order to be the loyal guardian of what also belongs to others, then you realize that it's really tzedakah. When you take that 10% and you give it to others, you're not giving away what's yours. You're giving away what belongs to them, but God empowered you to be the guardian of it. But Saddam didn't see it that way. Saddam hated tzedakah. Saddam despised the idea that you, why would somebody who earned something give it to someone else? Saddam despised the idea of tzedakah. Of a lot Lot approaches them with his wealth and with his, his great success either because he asked them permission or in the merit of Avram and the Pasuk testifies to their intent Sodom is a place that did not offer hospitality or kindness. Says the Ramban, quoting the Gemara in Sanhedrin, Sodom was a place, as we said, of promiscuity, of immorality, of licentiousness. It was a place of pure decadence. But you know what put it over the top? Not their moral depravity, but the fact that they were not sensitive, that they were unkind one to the other. The fact that they despised charity and kindness. Writes the Ramban, because they were habituated to this insensitivity more than anything else. Every other culture at least shows some form of kindness to the lowest common denominator, to the underprivileged in their culture, except Sodom. And that is the ultimate of cruelty. And now this is the part of the Ramban I wanted to share. Ki mishpat toivos. God didn't decide to destroy Sodom. Sodom had to be destroyed. Why did Sodom have to be destroyed? Because the land of Israel is a place of pure kindness and charity, of holiness and sanctity. It could not tolerate such a cruel culture. As we, we read later in the Torah, that the land will vomit out those who are not honest and just. It's amazing to think that you could have earth and soil and land that is a barometer of... It's a thermostat of morality. But that's the land of Israel. 
It cannot tolerate immorality and unkindness. It vomits them out. Says the Ramban, the reason God was so, um, the reason God was so severe with Sodom is because He was creating a precedent going forward. That in order to inhabit the land of Israel, you have to care about the underprivileged. You have to care about the downtrodden. You have to care about the lowest common denominator, the lonely. Right? The mitzvah we see most often in the Torah is care about the convert. Very timely topic. It's care about the orphan and the widow. And in this case, particularly in the land of Israel. Because without it, the land will vomit you out. And Sodom, who were the ultimate symbol of cruelty, it wasn't a punishment to destroy them. It was simply the reality. Oil and water don't mix. Is the water punishing the oil? Is the oil punishing the water? Would a chemist describe that the oil is punishing the water? No, it's just a, a reality of the physical world. They can't mix. Well, Eretz Yisrael and immorality can't mix. It's not a punishment. It's simply the reality of the world that God created. And says the Ramban, that is why Sodom needed to be, needed to be destroyed. <clears throat> I know it's a little early, but my voice is going. We're going to stop here. I really wanted to cover the entire section of the story why they look back. I'll, I'll just, let's skip ahead because I have to share this with you. One, one last thought. Remember when, when it's time for Lot to leave. Ugh, there's so much to say on all these pesukim. They're told not to look back. And his wife turned around and she was punished. Why was Lot told not to look back? Oh, so the Mephoshim would say that Lot did not merit to be able to witness the destruction. In other words, it was a fine line between Lot being saved and Lot being experiencing the destruction. Who was he to watch? Who was he to bask in the view of wicked people being destroyed when he himself had chosen to attach himself to that wickedness? But the Rav, in a Yerzeit Shir, 1953, gave a different interpretation. Said the Rav, Rabbi Salavechik, the many years that Lot wasted among the evil populace of Sodom could have been spent doing good deeds with Avram. When fleeing Sodom, burning with evil and falsehood, when overcome with feelings of failure and frustration, he must not look backward. Instead, he must forget his past and start anew. The angel, understanding Lot's feeling of utter worthlessness, tells him to save himself from the shame of that past by avoiding the retrospective thoughts. Isn't that a great interpretation? The prohibition of looking back is not just you don't deserve to see their destruction, but it's actually for Lot's own sake. Lot, if you want to rehabilitate yourself, if you want to become better, then you need to look forward, not backwards. Don't be stuck in the past. Don't let it weigh you down. Of course you have to learn from it. Of course you have to have regrets from it. But stop looking backwards. The longer you look back, the more shame and guilt you feel, the more you're stuck in the past, the less likely that you can move forward. If you, Lot, are to rehabilitate yourself from the mistake of having attached yourself to Sodom, then don't look back. You're only allowed to look forward. What a great interpretation of Rabbi Soloveitchik. Have a fantastic week.